0: Good to be with you on this really fun Sunday morning. As I mentioned last week up here, this is Jump Up Sunday. So some of you know that. Some of you are barely getting in the room right now because you probably are going through the process of trying to figure out how in the world do we drop our kids off at kids' church this week when everything's changed. So we apologize for that. We apologize for the changes. I know it's new. I know it's different. Um, And today's the day we learn it all. The good news is from this point forward, This is kind of the new norm for us. So if you didn't know where to bring kids this morning, now every week moving forward for at least the next season, you know where to bring your kids. So you can be here on time. You can be a part of the service. Um, Also, you might be experiencing for the first time in a while that your kids are in the service with you. And we just want to let you know that we think that's a beautiful thing. That here at Fortune Free, we love the fact that... Our kids have grandparents and even great-grandparents that go to the same church as them. For us to have great-grandkids and great-grandparents worshiping in the same room at the same time is such an incredible thing. It's such a great picture of what heaven will be like someday. So we don't want to miss the opportunity to have that happen. And so if you're sitting in the room and you're like, man, I got my kids. I know how that goes. I got four kids. I know they can be a little bit wild and a little bit crazy. I know at times it can feel like they're just kind of rustling through stuff. That noise doesn't bother us. Darren and I were talking about that this week. We love the noise. It's okay. If you're maybe sitting in a seat and someone starts pulling on your hair from the back, turn around, smile, and go, I'm glad you're here, kid. Uh, we love it. It's a great thing for us. We're super excited about the generations. and We're excited to be in the same room together during the service. So we invite that. Um, on a note of the, uh, the generations, let me also share with you a little announcement. I think it's really important. Many of you know, Bob Craning, who used to be on staff with us for many years, I think almost three decades of time in our men's ministry and our evangelism ministry. Bob Craning, uh, stepped in as an interim teaching pastor after Chuck here and Bob's just a wonderful man. And uh, because of COVID, they weren't able to have a great memorial service for Bob Craning. And so they're actually having a celebration of life service this coming Saturday, I believe, at 10 a.m. Is that correct? We have a, I don't know if we have a slide for that or not. This Saturday at 10 a.m. for Bob Craning over at Your Belinda Friends Church. Let me double check that and make sure that, that note is correct for you. But if you have been influenced by Bob, if Bob is someone who um, you know and love, or you knew and loved, someone who has made an impact on your life we just want to encourage you, come celebrate his life with us over at Friends Church on the 12th. Um, yeah, he was a great man. And Bob was one of those guys who lived out the generations. Bob poured into my life for years. He's poured into the lives of many. Um, it's a life that has really put, been put on display of doing this generational investment really, really well. So come join us for that. So that's it for this morning. Let me dive in to where we're at in the book of Genesis. So crack your Bibles open. Use your face IDs to open your cell phones. Do whatever you do. We're going to go back into Genesis 3 this morning. We're going to dive in together. Um, It has been a joy to walk through the book of Genesis. If you guys have your uh, journals, I would encourage you to also pull pull out your journals. And we're going to spend some time unpacking more of what happened from last week in this book. And like any good Netflix series, it's always good for us to kind of look back at what's already happened, right? You want to know what happened in the episodes previously. So what we know about the book of Genesis so far is that God created out of nothing this incredible place. He creates earth, the heavens, everything in it, right? Livestock, vegetation, land and sea, night and day, God creates it all and he calls it good. And then he creates man to live in the garden, and alongside of man, he creates woman, as Jeff mentioned, as an ally, as a helper, someone suitable to come alongside of man to join him in the journey of life. And so we have man and woman living naked and unashamed in the garden. There is nothing between them that is keeping them from full and complete transparency and vulnerability. Same is true of God. These people live in complete Harmony with God and God, in the midst of giving him all this freedom to live and to cultivate and to bring life to this garden that he 's planted them in, He also tells them i 've got one command for you. We talked about this last week. Darren mentioned just one way to make sure that they knew that they needed to be obedient to the God who created them, and man is tempted and falls into that tempted temptation because of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and in that temptation, this serpent who we learn about as an instrument of Satan, tempts them, tricks them, and they eat. They partake of this tree. The one thing that God has told them not to do or they will surely die. They partake in this fruit, they eat it, and then immediately we recognize the fact that they feel shame. Something changed in their world. The world was literally altered in that morning moment. It was torn apart. It was flipped upside down. Everything God had designed it to be And the unity and the harmony of relationship has been flipped on its head. And that's what we get to dive into today in Genesis 3. So it's really fun, really exciting stuff. So um, we're going to dive into that. What we're going to talk about today primarily is this. Darren mentioned last week that the sin that Adam and Eve partook in, it was not just the fruit. It was not trusting God. It was actually seeking to become gods of their own or actually believing that they could do it better than God can do it. And so today we're going to recognize what happens as a response, man's response to sin. We're going to see God's response to sin. And then we're going to see the consequences of what come about naturally because of sin and this broken foundation now that has been severed because of the sinfulness of mankind. So dive in with me. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and we're going to take it piece by piece. So here we go. It starts with this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves in the presence of the Lord from among the trees in the garden. Okay, let's start first with what we learn about man. Even some of you might be thinking, they hid, they jumped into the bushes. That's what they did. But before that, there was something that happened that I think is really, really important for us to hear. And it says that man heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. There's a fear in hearing God for mankind for the very first time. This harmonious relationship, this unity, right? This transparency, vulnerability, everything's on the table. Nothing's hidden. Nakedness is now leaped over by this guard of shame and guilt. There's a fear for the first time. Adam and Eve have never felt this emotion before. They're scared at the sound. They're f- the fear of hearing God. You guys probably know what this is like. I remember when I was 16 years old, uh, my parents did help to purchase a car for me. And I, you know, thought it was my responsibility to then teach all my friends how to drive a car. That's what you do when you're 16. This is why they have the new rule, by the way, where you can't drive friends until you're 17. This guy, right? So I would teach my friends how to drive a car uh, with regularity, whether they were of age or not of age. That was true. Kids don't do this. Uh, So, oh, by the way, if you haven't noticed my little hedgehog here, this is from my daughter. She wants to make sure you all see that I'm wearing this during the message this morning. Um, So anyway, um, I'm 16. I'm teaching my friends how to drive in the neighborhood. I feel like it's my responsibility. One night, I decide I'm lying to my parents. I'm going to go to this party. I'm not going to tell them that parents aren't going to be there, and I'm going to go hang out with friends. And in doing so, long, long story short, 15-year-old girl, I let her drive to Taco Bell she crashes my car into a fire hydrant. True story. Um, just so happens it was the fire hydrant that backed up to one of our pastor's houses. So he came out to pray with us. That was cool. Uh, that's a side note, part of the story as well. Yeah, a lot of things went on in the story. I'll tell you a story another day. But at the point that this thing really became real for me was the moment in which I'm sitting on the curb on the side of the road. And my head is in my hands and I'm feeling ashamed and I'm feeling guilty and I recognize what I've done. I've broken trust with my parents. I have absolutely taken advantage of what they gave me. They had given me so much, so much freedom. I really didn't have a ton of rules. And yet they were very particular about making sure there were parents at houses when we would go there. And I lied to them and told them, yeah, it's good. It's good. There'll be parents there for sure. And in the midst of that, this terrible thing happened and my car's crashed and I'm sitting on the side of the road and I'm feeling guilty for it. And there is a point in that moment where as I'm sitting there on the curb, waiting and waiting and waiting, knowing my parents are coming to pick me up, there's that sound that drives up, right? That car that comes rolling up and you hear it and you go, oh man. And then the door opens and you hear your dad's voice talking to the police officer and you think, oh man. And in that moment, I felt what I think Adam and Eve are feeling in this moment. I felt fear and hearing my parents come. And, And the reality is the end of the story God used this to really give me a great picture of his love for me. It was a beautiful thing. But in that moment, I feared the sound of my dad walking up. I feared the sound of his voice. I was nervous. I was scared because I knew I deserved something for what I had done. I knew I had broken trust with my parents. So Adam and Eve, they hear the sound of the Lord walking through the garden. This is the first thing. And again, this fear that they have, this fear and hearing is massive, right? That's the first thing we learn about man's response to sin is fear and hearing. Second thing that we learn about, about this sin situation is from God. And we actually get this beautiful picture. God, it says, is walking, let me pull it up again, is walking in the garden on the cool of day. Check this out for a second. This is so huge for us. Man has just sinned. They've severed everything God designed, right? They broke it and they they just stomped on it and rubbed it out. And God pursues them. He pursues them. God could have left them. He could have shunned them. He could have shamed them. He could have told them that they're not worthy. And he wants nothing to do with them. They ruined the design of creation and relationship that he had made. And yet he chooses to pursue them. And it says he comes in the cool of day in the garden. Now, I don't, I, we can only guess here, right? Some theologians would say the cool of day actually refers to the fact that there's like a storm. It's like the storm of the day, and God's coming in with judgment to tell Adam what he's done wrong. And other theologians would argue that the cool of the day was likely exactly as it literally sounds the middle of the afternoon. After a day of work, remember God gave Adam the responsibility to work and to toil over the land in a really healthy way. And maybe this is the time at the end of the day, you guys know how this goes when you've worked so hard, then you sit back, you grab something cold to drink. Maybe it's breezy. This is the time when you get to connect in relationship and maybe just maybe this is a regular occurrence. The fact that Adam and Eve actually recognize the sound of God walking can make us believe the fact that he's done this before. That somewhere God has shown up in human form to walk through the garden to meet with them and be with them. Maybe this was a regular occurrence. But what we know for sure is God pursues them. He leans into them. He comes towards them. Again, a God who is holy and in every sense in the word, of the word should have what they deserve was to be pushed down, to be separated completely. And instead, God leans in, he pursues. We get a great picture of this. If you guys remember in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling a story of the prodigal son. This, son. this story is really popular. A lot of you probably know it, you've heard it, but there's a son who essentially looks at his dad and in the midst of his dad's years, looks at him and says, basically, I wish you were dead. Would you give me my share of the inheritance? I want to take it and I want to leave. And so the father grants him that. He gives him his wish. And Jesus goes on to tell the story and essentially says that this son takes everything and he squanders it all. He wastes it on wild living, it says. And in the midst of that wild living, he literally is left with nothing to the point where he's now living amongst the pigs and feeding off of the same pods that they're feeding off of. And in his desperation, his brokenness, this son begins to rehearse in his head, this idea that I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him what I did wrong. I'm going to tell him all my mistakes. Maybe, just maybe, he will welcome me back. Maybe, just maybe, he will let me back, even as a servant, because the servants have far more than I do in this pigsty that I'm currently living in. And he's rehearsing this idea in his mind of how he's going to return to the father. And the most beautiful thing to me in this whole story is not even necessarily his response or what's going on in his heart. It's the dad's response. I kind of picture this as parents who are waiting up late at night for their kids who they know are in trouble. You've been there, right? If you have teenagers, you've been there where you're waiting for them to get home. It may be two in the morning and you know they were supposed to be home two hours earlier and you're waiting and anticipating, partly frustrated, partly disappointed, partly saddened by their choice, partly anticipating their arrival because you're nervous for them or you care for them, right? Right? So I envision this father sitting on a rocking chair on his porch for days. months I don't know how long it's been. Waiting for the arrival of his son. And at the moment that he sees his son in the distance, the scriptures tell us that he pulls up his skirt that they wore in that day, and he ran to his son and he embraces him. And even as the son's starting to spit off all the things he was practicing and all the words he was trying to say, he just embraces him, wraps his arms around him, throws sandals on his feet, throws a ring on his finger, throws a coat on his back, and claims him again as his own. The father pursues his son in his sin. That's a picture that Jesus gives through this parable. That's the picture we get of this God who at the very beginning of sin entering the world chooses to pursue Adam and Eve. He moves towards them. So Adam and Eve, the first thing we see that they do is they they hear and they fear. God, on the other hand, pursues them. He comes towards them and he leans in. And then as we go on in verse 8, it says this. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that's just the silliest thing. Right? Right? Hiding from God. I mean, really, like God just created this entire environment you're living in, created everything and gave you total freedom to, to live in it, to cultivate it. He's showing up in human form, walking through a garden, and you're going to hide from him behind trees, right? Like this is going to work for God. But there's something in there, again, that's a response to sin that we have to recognize. Man's tendency, our tendency, when we're broken, when we're ashamed, and we know we've done something wrong is to hide. We tuck it away, we sweep it under the rug, we pretend like it never happened, we put on a facade, we do whatever it takes for it not to be seen. We don't want to show anybody. And in this moment, Adam and Eve and their shame don't just hear and fear God, but they actually take the steps of going and hiding from God. Another story for you. I had uh, a lot of embarrassing stories in my life. I'm just going to keep rattling them off for you. When I was a young kid, um, we used to climb this tree out by the end of our street and had a bunch of these little like, purple, berry, olive-looking things, right? When these things would get smashed by cars, they just smush into the ground, turn everything purple. And so as young kids, of course, in our minds, what are these things best used for? Throwing them at each other, right? We throw these berries. That's what you do. Whenever you find berries or grapes or stones as kids, what do you do? You throw them kids don't learn from that. That's just what you do. So we grab a buckets of these berries. My friends and I would go down. I don't even, I don't even know if my mom knows this story. Um, we would go and we walk down to the end of the street and we would cruise down along the side of this like side street that we lived off of. And there was this big hill. To us, it felt gigantic. Nowadays, it's probably pretty small, but this hill was covered in ice plant. You guys know ice plant. Everyone had ice plant back then. And then on this high hillside of ice plant was two bushes. And these two bushes were semi-transparent. You could kind of see through them. And yet, they were enough of a hiding place that we could sit behind those bushes and do what? Right? Right over the top of the bushes to oncoming cars that would cruise down our street, right? And the goal was to throw it, huck it up there, and then listen for the dink. And if you hear the dink, you know you won, right? It was victory. And we'd celebrate behind these bushes and we'd laugh together that we hit the car. This is terrible, right? Do not take notes, kids, if you're in the room. But... The reality was this, we would do it over and over again. And it was just funny to us. The noise, dink, hit another car, dink, hit another car, probably purple little smudges all over cars, all over my neighborhood. And that's all my bad from years ago. And then there was this one moment where in the midst of us doing, playing this game, this car goes up and makes a U-turn and comes back. (laughs) And the car pulls up right in front of the hill that we're sitting behind these bushes. And a guy steps out of his car and he looks up on the hill and he says, I see you. (laughs) And as young guys, we're like, no, he doesn't. Like, maybe if we do that thing little kids do and we close our eyes, he can't see us. So we're like, still as ever behind this bush, you know, not moving, eyes closed, hoping he can't identify who we are. And he just says, I see you behind the bushes. And then he said this. If I ever hear one of those hit my car again, you don't want to know what I'm going to do to you, right? Which all that makes you do as a young kid is not move for like another 45 minutes, right? You're like, stone. I will never throw another berry. I will never do it again. But the reality is this, even in the moment that he is challenging us, we're hiding. He drives away 30 minutes later. I don't think we've moved. We're still hiding. We're still fearful of the reality of what could have been. We know exactly what we've done. We know exactly what we've done in our tendency in that is to hide. Now, again, this guy could see us through the bushes. God sees Adam and Eve through these trees. He's not surprised that they're hiding. He knows. He knows exactly what they've done. But Adam and Eve hear in fear. God pursues. And then Adam and Eve hide. Let's move on to verse 9. It says this, But the Lord God called out to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So this next thing we learn about the way that God responds to sin is the fact that God confronts Adam and Eve. And the unique part about this is I believe God does this very kindly. I believe God leans in, he pursues them, and then he throws them some soft toss, right? You guys know what this is like? Again, as parents, you know this, You know the version of this. But you give your kids opportunities to take responsibility, Right? Rather than come in and just hammer them for the things they've done wrong, which God had the right to do in this moment, we as parents have the right to do when our kids are disrespectful. Rather than that, he gives them, he kind of places the ball on a tee, right? Adam, where are you? Really? God knows where Adam is, right? Like Adam respond. I know where you're at. Stop hiding in the trees, right? And to Adam's credit, he does respond. He actually claims the fact that he's hiding, which is Probably smart, because if he just stayed silent there, God's like, really? You're not even going to answer this question? But then God gently asks the next question. Who told you, or because Adam says he was naked and hiding. And he says, who, who told you you were naked? Again, God knows. He's planting this in front of Adam, giving him an opportunity to respond and saying to him, Adam, own it. Here's your opportunity to step up, be a man, take responsibility for what you've done. And Adam doesn't respond, and so God goes one step further. Who told you that you were naked, he said. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, soft toss, waiting for Adam to take ownership. We know what this is like as parents. We do this with our kids all the time. When we parent well, we do this with our kids, right? When Jackson was three years old, my oldest I remember being at home one day. I think my wife was gone, and I was watching Jackson and then our youngest at the time, Brooklyn, who I think was little, like an infant, and she was taking a nap. And I left the front room to go back and check on Brooklyn. And when I came back out to the front room a few minutes later, I heard this rustling of papers, and then like a little bolting kid, you know, he's gone. And anytime your kid bolts out of a situation and darts away you got to look and see what he did, right? I mean, he's little, three or four years old. The kid is tiny, and yet he already knows what sin is. is. He's living in it, right? So I'm kind of tracking his steps, going, where did he come from? And I get to the table, and I see this pile of bags of fruit snacks, right? And Jackson was our snacker. This kid loved anything that, that sounded like, smelled like, tasted like fruit. He was in. He just wanted fruit all the time. And I got to the table, and not only did I see this pile of fruit snacks, which I thought were just bags that he was going to try to eat. But no, there was seven or eight bags that were already eaten, right? There is a pile of empty fruit snacks bags in the course of three or four minutes while I'm checking on his sister. My little three or four year old son has accomplished the task of swallowing all of those fruit snacks, which I would guess could be somewhere in the range of a hundred or so, right? You figure each bag has got what? 10 or 12 fruit snacks in it, Jackson has devoured them. I swear he must have thrown them back like oysters to get them down his throat as fast as he possibly could. And so I walked up on the scene, and again, I don't parent this great all the time, that's for sure, but I remember that idea of kind of going, hey, Jackson, where you at, buddy? <laughs> as he's hiding, right? Hey, hey, hey Jackson, there's a lot of fruit snacks bags on the table there. And no response, kind of eyes darting, Right. Jackson, did you, did you eat those fruit snacks? Did you put all those fruit snacks down in the last three minutes? Again, eyes darting, right? Giving him an opportunity. I want so badly as a dad in that moment for my son to go, yeah, dad, I did that. I think he eventually owned up to it. Again, he was three. He hadn't been so stuck into sin that he was like really learning how to hide and disguise himself. But that moment as a parent, you want to soft toss to your kids. You want to give them an opportunity to take ownership. God's doing that here and he's doing it really clearly. In his pursuit of of, of Adam and Eve, he also kindly confronts Adam and Eve. He kindly comes to them, giving them opportunities to respond to what they've done. And again, the last question that he asks in verse 11 is, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And this is where it gets really good. Have you eaten of the tree? God confronts kindly. Adam's response... The woman, right? First thing he does, blames. The woman, he goes straight after this beautiful gift that God had just given him that we just read about in in literally a passage prior. Now he's so quick to take this beautiful creature which God designed for him to enjoy life with and he tosses her under the bus, right? Right over the top of her. He has no concern. All vulnerability, all transparency, all unity in relationship literally pushed aside so he could blame someone else and he doesn't have to take the weight of it himself. He blames her. He blames Eve instantaneously. And then he goes a step further. And this is where it gets really good. He doesn't just say the woman. He says, the woman who you gave to be with me. He turns it to God, right? Adam's crazy. But don't we do the same? Have you guys done the same where you've sat in your room or you've sat in a space and you're like, God, what have you done? Why are we blaming God for our sin, right? But Adam does it in the midst of his brokenness, his shame, his guilt, all these emotions, these fearful things he's never felt before. He tosses his wife under the bus. He then looks at God and goes, you gave her to me, right? This woman who you gave to be with me, this woman who literally just, just as we read a passage before, he is naming all the animals, dog, frog, lizard, whatever, otter, rhino. And then he gets to a woman and he goes, whoa, man, right? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is part of me. I want her. I claim her. This same woman who he's literally been enjoying an intimacy naked in a garden. He literally just goes, tosses her under the bus. And then he looks at God and goes, you gave her to me. Good work, right? That's how desperate we get in our sin that we literally blame. And then God looks at Eve and asks her, what have you done? And she turns and she blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me, she says. Both of them, in the midst of their shame, in the midst of their guilt, their first reactions, they hear and they fear. Then they hide. Then they blame. God, on the other hand, pursues. And then he kindly confronts. He tosses softballs at them for them to take ownership and responsibility of what they've done. And then he corrects them. He corrects them with consequences. And as we see in the rest of this passage, it goes into these curses. And these are the things that are happening as a result, a natural reaction to the sin that man has done, right? This isn't God being an unjust God who's just flippantly throwing out consequences for things, saying, you're grounded. You know, like that's, that's what we do as parents, right? We throw out things and we don't hold to them. We just get so frustrated. We don't know how to respond. God really carefully corrects Adam and Eve. We'll start in verse 14. We're going to read this whole section. I'm going to come back and walk through it. It says this. First it says the Lord God said to the serpent, "Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman." Sorry. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So I'm going to skip over the serpent portion for just a second. And I'm going to go straight to verse 16. where, Where he looks at the woman. And he says this, he says, Surely I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire should be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. God takes some of these very unique gifts that he's given mankind to enjoy, and those things that were great gifts to enjoy in purity and in unity and harmony like we've talked about, God now uses as these consequences for the rest of mankind's being, Right? He takes this gift of childbearing. He tells Adam and Eve when he places them in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, right? Have children, like enjoy each other and have children, multiply. And now this reproduction, this multiplication of who they are as human beings is going to come with pain. Can you ladies imagine for a second? I can't. Can you imagine for a second? 10 pound baby, no pain, right? Not too shabby, right? Right? Can you imagine what that would be like if it wasn't with a heavy pain of childbirth? I've watched my wife deliver four children. It's not easy. Us guys, we like get frustrated when we have a cold, right? We're like sniffly and sad and want to lay on the couch and watch football. Our wives gave birth to children. And specifically, this consequence says there'll be added pain to that. We've seen it. We've seen the grimace of the face, the pain of giving birth to a child. The great gift still there but the pain in the process. We also know that in this be fruitful and multiply reality, as God creates man and woman, he gives them intimacy. That they would be together in unity, right? That they would be one. And somewhere along that line, with sin now in place, it says you are contrary to your husband. You will see things differently than he sees and he will rule over you. That her desire will be different than her husband's. That man and woman will now fight over power. There'll be a push for power, a push for for having more responsibility. I think this is true of all mankind, not just the man and the woman. A curse that we take on because of sin in our world is that we see violence and we see power struggle. We live in this world now. You see it every day. You cannot watch the news. You cannot live in this world and not think something is broken with mankind. Everyone thinks they know what's right and everyone will lure that power, hold that power over somebody else. That's the tension that's created because of sin that God places in the front of of Eve here as part of this consequence. And then he goes to Adam and he says this, because you've listened to your wife and have taken from the tree which I've commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, you are dust and to the dust you will return. God gave Adam the responsibility to work, to cultivate and care for the creation that he placed him in. Can you imagine roses without thorns, right? The beauty of roses, the the brightness of their color, the variety of what they bring in a a beautiful garden. But you know, if you actually have roses in your yard, not only are they beautiful at the top, but they pop every dodgeball that your kids have, right? Right? They pop every single one of them, every basketball, every soccer ball, any ball you buy for your kids gets popped by those things because they're covered in thorns. Roses without thorns. Can you imagine caring for your lawn without weeds? Don't get me started with weeds. I don't know if there's anything more painful and toilsome on a day-to-day routine than weeds. My wife likes weeds. She's weird. She like feels like there's like this great relief in going and weeding. I, I, I did not get that. I think that's why God cursed man with this one, right? He says, listen, thorns and thistles, you're going to, every day of your life, you're going to be working this field and no longer is this work that was designed for good going to feel good all the time. It's going to become hard. You're going to labor over this ground that I gave you. And then he goes on a step further beyond the punishment of weeds and thorns and thistles. And he says, The dust that I created you from, you're going to return to it. Death is introduced because of sin. That this eternal life that was designed to be in harmony with God in the garden forever is now again completely shifted. And as a result, man is introduced to the reality of death. There's now separation from God, there's now a time limit to their bodies. Everyone's got a clock. That didn't happen prior to sin. Sin is what brought that into the world. He says, you were formed from the dust, Adam, and now you will return to the dust. Death is introduced. So again, man, in response to his sin, he hears and he fears, he hides, he blames. Man, he blames God. God, in response to sin, he pursues his people. He kindly confronts, tosses them a softball, says, would you respond and take ownership? I don't know what would have happened, by the way, if Adam would have taken full ownership. Would things be different? I don't know. But he gave him an opportunity and he didn't do it. He blamed instead. And then thirdly, we see that God corrects. He corrects mankind for the thing that has happened. He gives consequences and curse to the specific things he gave them as gifts. And now those things become difficult, toilsome things that they're going to experience for the rest of their days. And he goes a step further. And this is where we go back to verse 14. Go back there with me real quick and we'll read it again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman between her offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I've heard other versions of that say, he shall strike your heel and you will crush his head. Just a couple things here. I don't think this has anything to do with the fact that snakes lost their legs in this moment. I don't think that they were once crawling animals and now they're slithering animals. But I think there is this reality of the fact that snakes, as we know them, are gross creatures. If you ask 90 some percent of Humans, if they like snakes, most of them go, no, gross, those are awful, right? There's enmity naturally because snakes are just difficult. But a step further in that is the offspring of these. It's not just the enmity between snakes, that we don't like them or we're scared of them. But there's a representation of Satan in this thing. That this instrument that Satan used to lure man and and woman into sin, that he used to trick them, that that representation, that snake, he says your offspring, there will be enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And right here, we get this beautiful picture in the midst of God's pursuit and his correct, I'm sorry, his pursuit and his confrontation, and then his correction, he gives a glimmer of hope. This is what they refer to, some people refer to this as the first gospel The Proto-Evangelium, they call it. This is the first chance we get a picture of the fact that Jesus is going to come and conquer again. That right at this point in time, sin and death are reigning over mankind. But that there will be a point in time when the skull of this enemy is crushed. Even at the strike of the heel of the offspring of the woman. We get this beautiful picture of hope for restoration because Jesus is and will be the victory that will overcome the sin that they are now living in, that they're going to be tortured by. And for us, friends, this is exactly what we need to hear. As mankind, we know we fear when we hear the sound of the Lord coming in the midst of our shame. We know we hide We know we're so quick to blame. If we can't admit that, we've got issues to work through. We do it all the time. We don't want to take ownership for our sin. We live in guilt and shame, and we were never designed to live that way. Sin, because of Adam and Eve entering in, brought forth all of those curses, all of the consequences that come now for us. But the reality is this. Adam and Eve didn't make the mistake, and then we stood by, and we're just guilty by association we willingly jump on that same bus, don't we? We fall into the same traps. We live in sin daily. And we hide and we blame and we fear. And we have this division between us and God at times because we have all this stuff in our life and we don't want to bring it to the surface. We don't want to let God see it. We're ashamed of it. But because of this passage, we see that we don't have to fear and hide and blame anymore. Our sins, we know now... But this was forecasted then are going to be paid for by the blood of Jesus. The Christ is going to come and he's going to take on the sins of the world and he's going to endure the cross for the penalty of that sin and he'll die so that it's covered, so that you and I now can have relationship with God again. It can be restored the way it was designed to be. Jesus comes to accomplish that. He has victory over that. In Romans 5.17, we see that it says this, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through one man, sin entered and death entered the world. Through one man, it will be conquered. Conquered. We get that forecasted in a little nugget right here. There's going to be more of this next week, but it's a beautiful picture of hope in the midst of what feels really heavy because sin is heavy. The weight of our sin is real. Our response to sin, God's response to sin, the natural consequences of sin is real. And then God gives this nugget of hope that one day Jesus will come. You know, take away the sins of the world. And it will bring about restored relationship for mankind with this God who designed and created them. There'll no longer be condemnation, no fear, restored fellowship with the Father, new heaven, new earth to come, sin and death conquered, and an opportunity for new life. And friends, Jesus offers us that now. You might be living in this hiding, in this shame. You might be fearful of this God, thinking that he will not love you because of what you've done. And I can assure you that's not true. God pursues. We sang about it. The reckless love of God, right? What does it say? It goes on to say, there's no shadow. He won't light up. No mountain. He won't climb up. No wall. He won't tear down. No lie. No wall. He won't kick down. No lie. He won't tear down. Coming after me. The father that we read about, that Jesus tells a story of, and the prodigal son pursues and embraces and welcomes back in, in the midst of his sin, this same God offers you that today to come back, to get out of hiding, to get out of shame, to get away from fear and to embrace and be embraced by a father who loves you so much. And he sent his son to the cross to cover that. So as we get a chance to continue to worship here this morning, as we get a chance to respond to this little nugget of good news, which has become great news for us, it's what we live for now as believers, I want to invite you to respond to that. If you've never committed your life to Jesus, today is the day. Let God embrace you. We're going to have people who are going to come up here in a few minutes as we're worshiping. They're going to be, have an opportunity to respond to you, to pray with you. I want to invite you to come and join them. Christina will invite you to come join them. But let me pray for you now where you're at in your seats, because we all need this. God, sin is what has controlled mankind for generations. It's because of this sin that we're separated from you, that we have brokenness in our relationship with you. It's because of this sin that we experience fear and guilt and shame and doubt and worry and anxiety. All those things are a response of sin, Lord. That was never your design for us. But you give us a way out. And in the midst of the sin in the garden, you pursued Adam and Eve. You loved them. You corrected them and you loved them and you gave them hope for a future. And now, Lord, we get a picture of that. We get to live on the other side where we know what you've already accomplished through your son and we're so grateful for it. Thank you for Jesus. So, Lord, this morning, would you pull us out of hiding? Would you let us experience your love and your grace? Would we receive the embrace of, you have for us in the midst of our brokenness. And Jesus, would we gain a greater picture, not only of our lostness in sin, but the fact that we're found in you. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for being a God who's approachable. Thank you for sending your son so that we can have restored relationship. We're so grateful and we praise you, Jesus, in your awesome name. Amen.